Beethoven Orchestraville. Orchestraville? Where's that? You change, you change four score and seven to, to 87? A landing was made this morning on the coast of France by troops of the Allied Expeditionary Force. I don't blame them for dyeing your hair, I said, but they waited too long to embalm it. Time now for spinning my dad's vinyl. Here with all his skips, scratches, and pops is my dad, Frank Baccarello. Thanks, sweetie, and thank you for tuning in to episode 92 of Spinning My Dad's Vinyl. It's been a while since we've pulled out this collection. We are going to hear some memorable comedians and some historical moments from just one of the six records in this Jack Benny-hosted box set. So, get ready for a severe contrast as we hear about our country at war and the comedians who kept us laughing during it with Volume 92, Golden Memories of Radio, Part 3. One of the greatest names in radio comedy was, of course, Fred Allen. The famous Benny Allen feud went on for years, though Fred and I were close friends. Fred had a sharp wit and a sense of satire that has never been surpassed. We exchanged many visits on radio, Fred to my show and I to his. His ability to ad-lib was phenomenal. And one night, after a particularly hilarious Fred Allen ad-lib, I returned this line, which has been quoted time and time again. Hmm. You wouldn't have said that if my writers were here. Fred's famous Allen's Alley is as fresh today as it was then. The senator's home. I'll knock and see what happens. Somebody, I say, somebody knock. Yes, I know. Claghorn's the name. Senator Claghorn, that is. I know you're from the South. When I'm in New York, I'll never go to the Yankee Stadium. Now, wait a minute. I won't even go to see the Giants unless the South Pole's pitching. Well, look. I refuse to watch the Dodgers unless Dixie Walker's playing. Now, wait a minute. Stop interrupting. Where's your manners? Manners, I have more. Uh, Try listening. You might learn something. Listen, all I'll ever learn. Your tongue's wagging like a blind dog's tail in a meat market. You're winded, hey? <laughs> Just sucking in some air, son. <laughs> well, leave a little. I'm breathing, too, you know. <laughs> tell me, uh, tell me, Senator, what is Washington doing about coal prevention? The Senate, I say, the Senate reconvened just in time. Yeah? I was glad to see Senator Aiken back. <laughs> Aiken back, that's a joke. Son. I know it's a joke. I know. That was a scrawny fat slip. I, I wasn't. I that was a green pot Listen, you don't know what it is. I yourself. keep tossing them and you just sidestep them. Well, look at them. Now, wait. Say, you're a regular sand sack. Sack, that is. Now, you wait. <laughs> Tell me, uh, cool off now just a second. Do you have a favorite cure for a cold? I caught a cold last week. Yeah. I'd like to ruin my filibuster. Ruin your filibuster? <laughs> What did you do? I took an old southern remedy, son. I drank down two buckets of hot mint juleps. You drank two buckets of hot mint juleps and you still held the floor? Held the floor? Son, I couldn't get up off it. (laughs) Well, I wonder how Titus Moody is doing this evening. Howdy, (laughs) bub. Say, uh, Mr. Moody, 
You look a little tired. I know. I was up all night. Couldn't get a wink. You didn't sleep a wink? No, no, it wasn't that. Somebody stole my tiddly. Uh. <laughs> well, Mr. Moody, uh, tell me, has this cold epidemic hit your farm? My wife had a nasty cold. Did you call the doctor? Yeah. Go down quick, give her sulfur and molasses. Put in too much sulfur. Well, how can you tell he gave her too much sulfur? When my wife sits in the dark, she glows. <laughs> well, are you doing anything about it? Why, Senator Claghorn, a foreigner next door, <laughs> he sent me over a bucket of hot mint julep. For your wife? No, no, for me. Tonight I'm getting lit up to keep her company. Come on, Doctor. Looks as though Titus is going to get lit up on his weekend. Well, let's see what a knock here will start. No. Ah, oh, Mrs. Nussbaum. You're expecting maybe two la lula lula banquets? No. <laughs> Tell me, Mrs. N, have you had any colds in your house? Mine husband, Pierre, is sick. Oh, really? They are maybe sending him to a clinic. The Meyer brothers. Oh, the Meyer brothers. <laughs> well, didn't Pierre try any cold remedies? Every day is a new remedy. First, he is bringing home fruit to drinking fruit juices. What kind? Oranges, grapefruit, tambourine. <laughs> well, how long did he drink the fruit juices? One day. Mm -hmm. Then Pierre is opening up the window and throwing out the fruit. Oh, he had another remedy? Vitamins from vegetables. Oh, good. good. <laughs> He's bringing home carrots, sprinkle of beans, and rutabagos. <laughs> how long did he try vitamins? One day. One day again. Pierre is opening up the window and throwing out the wedges of He had yet another remedy? Absolute rest. You're staying in bed. Uh-huh. I am bringing meals. I'm bringing pills. I'm bringing hot water bottles. Well, how long did this last? One day. And then? I am opening up the window and throwing out to Jack Benny introduced us to the first side of the record, Great Radio Comedians. You heard Allen's Alley with Fred Allen, Senator Claghorn, Titus Moody, and Mrs. Nussbaum. The first Allen's Alley segment was broadcast on Sunday, December 6th, 1942. It was one of the many iterations of the Fred Allen Show, which aired from 1932 through 1942. Okay, why this album for this episode? Well, there's no other way to say it. I love radio history. I can listen to some of these old shows a million times, and I think I've listened to the original full radio version of Abbott and Costello's Who's On First at least a dozen times, if not more. Now, most of you are listening to only the Who's On First bit, but there were several other skits that led up to that famous bit. Good radio is truly theater of the mind, and that was a concept first taught to me at the Ohio School of Broadcast Technique many years ago. It's a technique I tried to get good at during my radio career, sometimes too good, but 
that's a story for another time. Jack Benny and the Longines Symphonette has put together an incredible six-record box set of some truly historic moments caught on the broadcast microphones. And you can just picture in your mind what's going on as these truly talented early radio broadcasters described the scene in front of their eyes or from the script. Um, this is especially true when you hear some of these wartime recordings as reporters describe the horrific scenes in front of them. Geography was no longer just a schoolboy study. North Africa, the Coral Sea, Leyte Gulf, Stalingrad, and then the moment the Allies had waited for occurred on June 6, 1944. The Allied commander, Dwight David Eisenhower, spoke to the world. People of Western Europe, a landing was made this morning on the coast of France by troops of the Allied Expeditionary Force. This landing is part of the concerted United Nations plan for the liberation of Europe made in conjunction with our great Russian allies. And FDR spoke from the United States. My fellow Americans, last night when I spoke with you about the fall of Rome, I knew at that moment that troops of the United States and our allies were crossing the channel in another and greater operation. It has come to pass with success thus far. But at the same moment the leaders were speaking, history was being made by men in landing ships, and radio was on the spot. Listen to George Hicks as he rode in with the first assault waves to land on Fortress Europe. Our own ship has just gave its warning whistles, and now the flak is coming up in the sky. And this same surge of power was being felt in the Pacific. On February 19, 1945, the United States Marines landed on Iwo Jima. An NBC newsman was with them in this bloody battle. Dallas, we hear this gunfire going on all around us. Now we are now inside the screen of warships. There's no more warships between us and the beach. These, we look out to the stern of us now, and there are hundreds of craft flying out there. Between us and the beach, nothing except a few amphibious craft that are on the beach destroyed their tanks. They're still beached in there. As the water's being churned up quite a bit in between us and the beach, now with the bursting of these shells. It looks like a tank burning in there on the shore. Looking through our glasses now, we're just a couple of hundred yards off the beach. We can see these anthrax pull up along the beach and dozens of Marines around each one of them. You can see those terraces now, stretched along on the seaside of those terraces for the cover they offer. There's a line of uh, 
Marines taking protection from those covers. There must be a group of Marines that have just recently landed. You can see lots of fresh material over there on the beach. And you can no doubt hear the bursting of these ships. Bursting all around it. Tojo isn't going to get much use out of this island from here on in. You get a better look at that little fire we saw on the beach. It is indeed a jeep that has been hit and burning. You are going to hit the beach in just a couple of seconds. So we're going to be quiet and brace ourselves for the shot. And now we've hit the beach, just simultaneously with that, with that uh, uh, shell burst that you heard, heard, we hit the beach. The smell of victory was in the air as the Allies swept back the enemy in Europe and in the Pacific. News bulletin after news bulletin spoke of another step toward peace. There were four cuts from the section of the collection entitled Radio Reports World War II, D-Day to Final Victory. What you heard in that compilation was Dwight D. Eisenhower announcing D-Day, Franklin D. Roosevelt on D-Day, a live report from the landing ship on D-Day, and also live radio from the Iwo Jima invasion battle. Now, I wanted to pause here to say there's also great historic audio clips on this record of radio announcers reporting about the atomic bomb drops and other battles during that war, but those reporters were safely in a studio. What you just heard were radio journalists embedded with the soldiers, and that's why I chose for you to hear those cuts. Okay, let me tell you about my dad's vinyl I have chosen for this episode. Jack Benny, Golden Memories of Radio, on the Longines Symphonette Society label. It's a six-vinyl LP compilation mono box set format, was released in 1969. Its genre is non-music, and its style is radio play. We will hear record three of the collection, which is sides three and ten. Now, these records were numbered to be used on that long self-releasing spindle that I'm sure you or your parents had in the living room a long time ago. Now, you would hear sides one through six without having to turn any records over. We're going to hear nine pieces of this recording uh, broken up into five parts during this episode. Now, I will read a few paragraphs from the included book entitled Recollections of a Radio Writer by Albert G. Miller. When Eddie Cantor appeared on the Ever Ready Hour, it never occurred to me that one day I'd be writing that program, but how was I to know? I still had to pass chemistry and win my diploma. Meanwhile, I was listening to other performers who were to become part of my future, Vincent Lopez, Billy Jones, and Ernie Hare, and the Ipana Troubadours. In 1927, a year memorable for radio's coverage of Lindbergh's return, the Rose Bowl game, and the second Dempsey-Tooney fight, I took the advertising job that led straight to, a New, York, to New York at a career in radio writing. In those days, ad agencies created and produced their own shows, and my shop's baby was the Ever Ready Hour, sponsored by the National Carbonate Company. That organization's Mr. George Furness announced the program each week and often brought his young daughter to the studio. Yes, Betty, I remember you so well as the flaxen-haired schoolgirl who came along with Daddy, little dreaming of a fabulous future with Westinghouse and that upstart TV. And I remember countless ever-ready hours with such personalities as Will Rogers, Commander Later, Commander Later Admiral Richard E. Byrd, 
Count Felix Van Luckner, the Hall Johnson Choir, and the grizzled trader Horn Dash, who brought his own courage medicine to the broadcast in a bottle labeled I.W. Harper. And I recall making our own realistic sound effects for the dramatic shows. Dried peas rolled in a box give us, gave us breakers tumbling on the shore. Rows of dangling wooden blocks, definitely man, uh, manipulated, simulated ranks of marching men. Dried peas rolled in a box gave us breakers tumbling on the shore. Rows of dangling wooden blocks, definitely manipulated, simulated ranks of marching men. A bit of cellophane crumpled between the fingers became raging forest fires. In those late 1920s, I heard Al Joson's initial broadcast, as well as the debuts of The Voice of Firestone and Real Folks, radio's first drama series. And I was listening when Amos and Andy came to the mic for Pepsodent, the first of their incredible string of 10,000 broadcasts. Nor did I miss the radio debuts of Walter Winchell, Harry Lauder, and Maurice Chevalier, the Columbia Broadcasting System was founded in 1929, and as the decade ended, Variety assured us, readers, that the radio was here to stay. We believed it then, and we still believe it. Okay, let's see what prices this record is being sold at on Discogs.com. The highest was $12.99, lowest $1.78, with an average of $7.52 and a median of $7.75. It was last sold on July 27th, 2022, for that high of nearly $13. Now, my dad's record is in really good condition. I don't think he played this box set very much. It was certainly a set I did not know he had. Otherwise, I know I would have listened to these records a lot. Um, I think that the album was also kept in great shape by this plastic lined paper sleeves. And the box itself is also in very good shape. Very interesting box. I love how it slides out and then it gives you a little lid so you can access the records. Um, so the box also helped to keep the um, records in great shape. But of course, my dad has his famous address label on the front. And the booklet inside, I am also going to call in very good shape. I will value my dad's collection at $10. Okay, let's move on to a shortcut of a sad time, even as it looked as if the Allies would win the war. Listen to John Daly on April 12, 1945. The world and the nation were shocked. We interrupt this program to bring you a special news bulletin from CBS World News. A press association has just announced that President Roosevelt is dead. The president died of a cerebral hemorrhage. All we know so far is that the president died at Warm Springs in Georgia. With the victory he had helped to engineer so close at hand, FDR did not live to enjoy the fruits of his labor. Arthur Godfrey, the old redhead himself, talked of FDR as radio again demonstrated its unique ability to transmit sorrow and loss on a very personal basis. The drums are wrapped in black crepe and are muffled, as you can hear. And the pace of the musicians is so slow. And behind them, these are Navy boys. And now just, just coming past the treasury, I can see the horses drawing the caisson. And most generally, folks having as 
tough a time as I am trying to see it. And behind us, behind us is the car bearing the man on whose shoulders now falls the terrific burdens and responsibilities that were handled so well by the man to whose body we're paying our last respects now. God bless him, President Truman. We return you now to the studio. In that shortcut, you heard the announcement of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's death and Arthur Godfrey speaking at his funeral. Time now for this episode's interesting side note, and it has to do with the Benny Allen feud Jack mentioned in that first intro. The memorable feud between Fred Allen and Jack Benny of the Jell-O program began on a 1936 episode of Town Hall Tonight. On December 30th, 1936, Allen had as one of his guests in the amateur portion of his program, future professional violinist Stuart Cannon. Then, 10-year-old Cannon performed Schubert's The Bee on his violin. After his rendition of the classic, Allen made reference to a certain alleged violin player who should be ashamed of himself, noting the not-so-good violin playing synonymous with Benny. For a decade, the two exchanged insults on both men's shows so convincingly that fans of either show might have believed they had become blood enemies. In fact, the two men were good friends and admired each other greatly. Benny and Allen often appeared on each other's shows during the feud, both in acknowledged guest spots and surprise cameos. On one Christmas program, Allen thanked Benny for sending him a Christmas tree, but then added that the tree had died. Well, what do you expect, quipped Allen, when the tree is in Brooklyn and the sap is in Hollywood? <laughs> Benny in his memoir, Sunday Nights at 7, and Allen in his memoir, Treadmill to Oblivion, revealed that both comedians' writing staffs often met together to plot the direction of the mock feud. If Allen parodied the Jack Benny program as the Pinchpenny program, Benny responded with a parody of Town Hall Tonight, Clown Hall Tonight. Their playful snipping, Benny was ignorant and he's been losing ground ever since, also appeared in the films Love Thy Neighbor and It's in the Bag. One memorable period during the feud came during Alan's parody of the popular quiz show Queen for a Day, calling the sketch King for a Day. Alan played the host and Benny, a contestant who sneaked onto the show using the alias Myron Proudfoot, Benny answered the prize-winning question correctly, and Allen crowned him king and showered him with worthless prizes. Allen proudly announced, Tomorrow night, in your ermine robe, you will be whisked by bicycle to Orange, New Jersey, where you will be the judge in a chicken-cleaning contest. A professional clothes press was wheeled on stage to press the suit Benny was wearing. Allen instructed his aides to remove his suit one item at a time, ending with his trousers, each removal provoking louder laughter from the studio audience. After his trousers came off, Benny howled, Allen, you haven't seen the end of me, to which Allen immediately replied, It won't be long now. The sketch and the ensuing laughter ran so long that announcer Kenny Delmar was cut off by the network before he could finish his final commercial and the show's credits. Allen was notorious for running over time on many of his shows due to his ad-libbing. The comedians planned to settle their fictional feud on March 21, 1937 during a broadcast of Jack Benny's show from the Hotel Pierre in New York, 
But the event never transpired, and the trade of insults continued for years. <laughs> okay, now back to the great radio comedian's side of this record. Radio contributed many words and phrases to our vocabulary. When you said a person was a real Baron Munchausen, you had Jack Pearl and his famous character in mind. Well, well, Baron, I'm delighted to see you. Well, Charlie, of all the people <laughs> in the whole world. I haven't seen you in a long time. Where you been? I just come back from the side. Oh, you did? Yeah, I just come back. How'd you get over here? I came over on a ship. How was how the food aboard the ship, Baron? Food was just so-so. Oh, just so-so. You huh? know something, Charlie? Mid every meal, I had to eat soup. With every meal you had to eat? I had to eat soup. Was it compulsory? You see, I was... Hello? <laughs> I say, was it compulsory? No. <laughs> tomatoes. Oh, tomatoes. No, we didn't have compulsory. Oh, oh say, by the yeah, way, but, just, yeah, just a moment. Did but, you did you know that Jimmy Durante has been looking all over this theater for you with a gun? What do you mean? He's looking for me with a revolver? <laughs> what? I say, he's looking for me with a revolver? <laughs> With a revolver, yeah. Why, why he's looking for me, why? Well, he said that you called him a dirty name. I called him a dirty name? He said that you swore at him. Oh, what a liar! Yeah, what a now, now, don't get excited. You'll get high blood pressure. No, not me. I'm anemic. Oh, no. sure. <laughs> Listen, Charlie, I give you my solemn word. I never called him a dirty name, and I never swore at him. Well, then how did it happen? Here's how that comes out, just like it was. All right. Uh, what day is this today? Today? Yeah. Today is Sunday. Sunday. That was four days back. That was Wednesdays. Yeah. You see, I'm going out and <laughs> meet my... Wait a minute. What day did you say? Wednesdays. No. I was going... You mean Wednesday? Yeah, in the center of the week, like, no. you know? <laughs> Wednesday, Wednesday, named after the god Woden. No. <laughs> Wednesdays is named after Tuesday. Oh, well, let me... <laughs> You see, Wednesdays, I was going in the country with my car. I see. Well, as, well, wait, as wait, I'm wait, driving... Wait a minute. Tell me, uh, what, what time of the day was this? Oh, this was maybe 9 o'clock. 9 o'clock? 9 o'clock. 9 o'clock a.m. or p.m.? Uh, so I'm going... <laughs> what was that? What? I say, was it, was it 9 o'clock a.m. or p.m.? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going out with my car. Why don't you answer my question? Was it 9 o'clock a.m. or p.m.? No, no, no. That's not nice. What's not nice? Now, I don't like that. Now, you hear that? Now, what are you say... talking about? Now, I know what that is. Now, oh, don't oh, say you that. You do. <laughs> I'm going out all right, all right. Wait a minute. Now, I don't like you know what it is? Yeah. Well, what is it? About the farmer's daughter. No. I don't like Jack Pearl contributed Vajudere Charlie to our language. Baron Munchausen featuring Jack Pearl. Now, Jack Pearl was a vaudeville performer and a star of early radio. He was best known for his character, Baron Munchausen. He made the transition from vaudeville to broadcasting when he introduced the character on the Zegfeld Follies of the Air in 1932. His creation was loosely based on the Baron Munchausen literary character. As the Baron, Pearl would tell far-fetched stories with a comic German accent. When the straight man, originally Ben Bard, but later Cliff Hall, expressed skepticism, the Baron replied with his familiar tagline and punchline, Was you dare, Charlie? Was you 
there, Charlie. This catchphrase soon became part of the national lexicon, and now this clip was recorded sometime in the mid-1930s. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. Uh, Definitely some historical recordings on this record from the golden age of radio. Can you even begin to imagine being a war correspondent and being at either of those two battles? Not just being there, but having to describe the horrors you were seeing in front of you without causing people to turn off their radios due to what you were broadcasting. Neither of those reporters would know how the day's battle would end, nor did they know just how historical those battles would end up being. And literally on the flip side, some of the best belly laughs I've had listening to old comedy. Jimmy Durante added, I got a million of them. While Joe Penner offered, you nasty man, don't ever do that. And want to buy a duck? I guess we all used Molly's famous, taint funny, McGee. What are you reading, dearie? Wimple's bird book. (laughs) He left it here last night. And you never read such a miss of mass information in your life. It's awful. Well, if it's that bad, why do you read it? It's so garbled, it, it fascinates me. This book has got more wrong answers than a nervous housewife on Take It or Leave It. (laughs) Look at the title, even. American Birds and Their Habits. They can't even spell habits, you see? Where? There. Oh, that word isn't habits, dearie. It's habitats. Well, what I want to know is what their habits are. Who cares where they have their habits at? (laughs) Any bird lover who reads this would throw eggs at the publisher. (laughs) Say, when did you become such a bird lover, lover? Ever since the first time I had quail with wild rice. (laughs) What particular statement in that book are you quarreling with? Well, listen to what it says about the feeding habitats of the pelican. All right. It says the pelican feeds occasionally on other things besides fish, but it definitely prefers marine life. Now, that is ridiculous. Why is it? There ain't a pelican living that could get in the marines. (laughs) Why? They even turned me down twice. Dearie, that isn't what that means. Besides, I think you're being too critical. After all, you're not much of an expert on bird life. Who ain't? You ain't. Huh? I mean, you aren't. Oh, 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 the heck I aren't. (laughs) Who wasn't worked his way through high school raising baby chicks and even invented a slot machine that would dispense them two for a quarter? (laughs) And who was it that a chewing gum took his idea and beat him to the patent office? What chewing gum? Chicklets. That's why I say these people are right these... Come in. Oh, it's Wallace Wimple. Hi, Wimp. Hello, Mr. Wimple. Hello, folks. <laughs> we were just reading your bird book, Mr. Wimple. Hope you don't mind. Oh, not at all, Mrs. McGee. I'm glad to know where I left it. I'm afraid I was rather upset when I left here last night. Yeah, we, we noticed that, Wimp. <laughs> why, did I do something? Well, we had the radio turned on to a political rap. Oh, I remember yeah. now. A deep voice snarled, Wallace is going to get the beating of his life. And I went right out the window. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Silly me. <laughs> hey, how are you getting along these days with her, Wimp? You mean, sweetie face? My, my big old wife? Yes. About as usual We had a little tiff yesterday Believe me, Sweetie Face puts up a tough tiff 
was it about, Wimp? Oh, it was nothing, really. No? She came back from downtown with a new hairdo and asked me how I liked it. Then? <laughs> and I told her. <laughs> Frankly, sweetie face, I said, it looks like an explosion in an Excelsior factory. <laughs> I said, or a crew haircut with mutiny on the poop deck. <laughs> I don't blame them for dyeing your hair, I said, but they waited too long to embalm it. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. And then out loud, I said... It... <laughs> I said, it looks simply beautiful, dear. <laughs> Why, gosh, how could she object to that? <laughs> oh, she knows me so well. <laughs> She ignored the compliments on my lips and tried to slap the expression off my face. <laughs> when I ducked, she... Oh, speaking of ducks, did you enjoy reading my bird book? Yeah. No. What? Confidentially, Wimp, this book is fuller of tripe than the inside of a cow. Oh, I beg your pardon, Mr. McGee. This is the finest bird book there is. <laughs> this is the authority on birds. It tells about the dodo bird disappearing, the migratory habits of the snow goose, yeah. how the passenger pigeon became extinct. Wait a minute, wait a minute. What was that again? You mean about the passenger pigeon? Yeah, that. Well, it says on page 49, and I quote, mm -hmm. the passenger pigeon, which once swarmed over the North American continent by the millions, has become completely extinct. The last known passenger pigeon died in the Cincinnati Zoo in 1914. Exactly. That's just what I mean. That is a falsehood. What do you mean, McGee? I mean, I saw a passenger pigeon today. I've seen one every day for weeks. Oh, my goodness, Mr. McGee. If what you say is true... And it is. If you actually saw a real-life passenger pigeon, why, why, any zoo in the country would pay thousands for one. You mean thousands of money? Thousands of dollars for one pigeon, Mr. Wimple? Are you uh, sure it was a passenger pigeon, McGee? Why, sure I'm sure it was a passenger pigeon. Hey, if there were that kind of dough, I could trap that thing and sell it for... Oh, my gosh. Where's my hammer? Where's my tools? I gotta make a trap. Where's my screwdriver? I'll I don't know, Mr. McGee. I'm just a guest here. Oh, I know. I left it right here in the hall closet. No, don't open that door, McGee. Oh. Fibber McGee and Molly with Mr. and Mrs. Jim Jordan. One of the most popular and enduring radio series of its time. It ran as a standalone series from 1935 to 1956, and then continued as a short-form series as part of the Weekend Monitor from 1957 to 1959. The title characters were created and portrayed by Jim and Marion Jordan, a husband and wife team that had been working in radio since the 1920s. But there was something a little more to that sound effect at the end. None of the show's other running gags was as memorable or enduring as the overstuffed hall closet. The gag involved McGee's frequently opening a cacophonous closet with the bric-a-brac it contained clattering down and out and often enough over McGee's or Molly's heads. Quote, I got to get this closet cleaned out one of these days, unquote, was the usual McGee observation once the racket subsided. Naturally, one of these days almost never arrived. Like many such trademarks, the clattering closet 
became began as a one-time stunt, but the closet was developed carefully, not being overused. It rarely appeared in more than two consecutive installments, though it never disappeared for the same length either. And it became the best-known running sound gag in American radio's classic period. Exactly what tumbled out of McGee's closet each time was never clear, except to the sound effects men. But what signaled the end of the avalanche was always the same sound, a clear, tiny household handbell, and McGee's inevitable, inevitable post-collapse lament. Fibber McGee's closet entered the American vernacular as a catchphrase synonymous with household clutter. <laughs> and there you have selections from another great record with some memorable moments in history. So thanks for tuning into Volume 92, Golden Memories of Radio Part 3, however you did. If you want more information about this show, head over to spinningmydadsvinyl.com. I'll be back next week with all my skips, scratches, and pops for Volume 93, Dinah Indeed. Until then, go with the flow, my friends. <laughs>